0: Hello, and welcome back to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg, and on today's show, we're talking about what is going on in and around the streets of Santa Barbara. A rise in anti Semitism is affecting all corners of the world, and this trend is no exception in Santa Barbara County. UCSB Arts and Lectures hosted Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, to speak on UCSB's campus about anti-Semitic extremists and how the community can take back that momentum. This was in an arts and lectures talk called Fighting Hate for Good on May 22nd. Now joining us on the show is Dan Micell, Regional Director of the ADL Santa Barbara Tri-Counties, to speak more about the topics mentioned at the Arts and Lectures talk and to hone the conversation into how anti-Semitism is affecting the Santa Barbara Jewish community. But first up on the show, I delve into the question, what is the future of State Street? Due to the pandemic, the city opened up several blocks of State Street for restaurants and businesses to put up outdoor parklets, with the goal of allowing businesses to remain afloat through outdoor, socially distanced dining services. But back in January, the city council discussed a tiered fee system, charging businesses between $3 to $12 per square foot to keep their parklets. The fees would account for the high maintenance costs to upkeep State Street. But some businesses pushed back, saying the rates are too high, even garnering some 400 letters directed to the council in favor of the open-air promenade. And now, after much discussion and relitigation, the city council has settled on a flat $2 per square foot fee. I had Mayor Randy Rouse on the show today to talk about what's new with the parklets and the promenade, and not just that, but also the potential allowance of cars or trolleys on the road, how the council is tackling the high vacancy rates, and overall, what our local government envisions for the future of State Street.
1: Hi, I'm Randy Rouse, and I am the mayor of the city of Santa Barbara.
0: Thank you, Mayor Rouse, for coming on the show today. So. Lately, there's been a lot of discussion in decision-making surrounding the future of State Street. I wanted to first bring up one of the sort of hottest discussion points going on right now, and that's the parklet fees. Back in January, a sliding scale was set, charging restaurants on State Street with outdoor parklets between 3 to $12 per square foot. Now City Hall has decided on the $2 per square foot fee and I know there was some relitigation litigation happening in City Hall over these fees, but let's back up for a second. And can you walk us through kind of what has been happening since January and where we're at now?
1: Well, first of all, you're spot on when you say there's been a lot of discussion about the state of State Street. Uh, where you're off a little bit is about decision making because there's been very little decision making being done. So the original parklet fees uh, were proposed as a way to pay for the maintenance of State Street, the cleaning, the lighting, all the things that we do in our staff. And for the past three years, nothing's been charged, which is on council. That's, that's council's fault. And then we had a subcommittee that went through and they worked on the parklet fees and whatnot and came up with this formula. On the recommendations of staff, and the staff gave us a number, gave them a number to say, we need to pay for these. And so we started out at $3 a foot for a very removable, very simple, non roofed parklet. And that would be within the parameters of your own storefront. And all the way up to something where you exceeded your storefront, had a roof. I mean, I don't know. There was a. It was kind of complex. There was a bunch of categories. So a lot of the parklet owners were uh, dismayed by this. Uh, But once again, it was staff's method to try to do cost recovery, which every program we have, we need to at least attempt to do full cost recovery on, because otherwise it's subsidized by the rest of the general fund. So now we're looking at things like cuts to parks and rec, cuts to libraries, cuts to police, and yet we charged a small fraction the decision to make at two bucks a foot, which... I was, uh, as we say in England, gobsmacked by the entire process because the subcommittee themselves, three of them sit on council, and uh, they all voted to just do the $2. There's nobody ever even discussed before. And uh, so what that means is is that uh, the costs still exist. We've already had three years of no-cost recovery, and now we're going to continue on with another year of no-cost recovery but we still have the same expenses, the same staff and whatnot going forward. So all those fees have to come in from somewhere else. I mean, we're going to make some tough decisions this year. It's a really tough budget year. And as we make those tough decisions, we better be mindful that you know, even though it's not huge money, you know, $100,000 here, 100000 there, but someday it's all it's going to be real money. And, uh, but it does mean to an after school program or it means to a library collections or whatever it is, it's all general fund money. I've been a little unhappy, frankly, that, you know, we've gone for three years uh, since the street, State Street's been closed down. We haven't done anything with it, no experimentation, nothing to say, well, where are we going to go with this? Initially, it was the right move for council to do, to let people serve uh, food out in the street because you couldn't eat indoors i'm not sure what the reasoning is now because that's been over for a while so here we are and uh, like i said the when you say when you say decisions have been made that that's where i'll probably cross swords with you because i i say we're not big on making decisions clearly
0: thank you for bringing up some of those points and I i want to touch on those more so you mentioned that these fees will go towards public works and cleaning up state street And you also mentioned the social distancing aspect, COVID era, and that's why these parklets sort of emerged. And I know some will say that the emergence of these parklets during COVID were sort of a happy accident, allowing businesses to let their customers actually use their their spaces, socially distance, which has now just grown into this great walkable promenade. Um, three years later. I also know that there is some talk that some businesses are benefiting more than others. And then there's also some ADA regulations that are um, not being met. So with all that said, can you talk about why the city council has imposed this fee?
1: Well, we imposed the fee, like I said, that was, well, I don't, I don't even want to call it a compromise, is what they settled on. I, I voted against it, as did my colleague Eric Friedman. But going back to the happy accident, well, Yes, I guess you could say it that way, but it also is purposeful. The purpose was to provide a lifeline to these restaurants to stay open because they were the ones most severely hit. And we do hospitality for most of our tax base in this town, and that's what we do for a living. But now we're saying, well, you know, it kind of goes back to they never let a crisis go to waste because now we're closed for the purpose of having those parklets. So when you talk about a promenade, that's That kind of elicits the idea of people strolling up and down the avenue. But in fact, most people still strolling down the sidewalks. There's a lot of bike traffic and skateboard traffic and electric bike traffic on State Street, which kind of precludes a lot of that strolling aspect. And it's still a street. It's still a blacktop versus a curbed sidewalk. So it doesn't really look like a prominent idea. And I know that, you know, and then the plans are talking about those kinds of conversions my initial objection is just the current management of the street we haven't done anything there are still quite a few blocks where there has been no uh no no uh, subjects that there are no no businesses coming into the vacant properties before covid retail slowed down quite a bit and uh you know we really felt it and, and at that point in time by the way i was on council And we did uh, take the fees away from the outdoor dining people. And I voted for that, even though I had my own restaurant with a patio, and they were my competitors. But it was the best thing for the community. I still think robust outdoor dining is the best thing for the community. But now we're in a position where these storefront vacancies have remained vacant. And I talk to retailers all the time. They come and see me, and they go, boy, we'd like to have a presence in Santa Barbara. What's going to happen with the street? And I go, you know, I can't tell you, I don't know. They go, well, we're not gonna open on a closed street. I don't know retail, I assume they do, but that's just the way they go. So going back to what my initial fear was, is back in the 60s and 70s, the urban mall was the hot new thing. And everybody did these, they call them promenades now, and mall's a bad word, I guess, I don't know. But most of them have failed, almost 90% of them have failed over the years. And the consultant came back and said, well, we've got a new way of looking at a new, a new metric where it's actually there's about a 38% success rate. And I go, why are we applauding a 38% success rate? You know, unless you're playing baseball, 38% success rate really isn't very, isn't wonderful. So there has been a lot of sentiment, public sentiment, as well as, you know, people around that, that love the idea of a closed street always have. We talked about this back way back when. And now the opportunity came. But in my mind, I'm going, okay, if it's really a good idea now that we've closed it for the restaurants, would it have been a good idea? Would we have planned this if State Street was status quo? And we said, I'll tell you what, let's do. Let's hire a consultant and plan for a promenade. Would we have done that? And to me, that's the real litmus test on whether or not we're in a good space or not.
0: I see. And we talked quite a little bit about transportation, the walkability of it, there's bike congestion. So would allowing cars to drive through State Street be something that you see in the future and or want to see in the future?
1: I think it's going to end up being a hybrid. And here's why I'd want to see it for a couple of reasons. Number one, you do have deliveries and things and you have, once again, that storefront thing that if the retailers just won't, won't go there. And 8 to 10 blocks, however long the State Street Santa going up being, is, is way to be the longest one in the country. Way too long, number one. Number two is I think we really need to have a trolley service back because that is how a lot of people saw Santa Barbara, slowly cruising up the street, looking at the architecture, which, by the way, it's hard to see with the parkless in front, but that's just another thing. And number three is I got this call the other day from some folks that run the Granada, and they going, oh, we really love this street, you know, the promenade thing but can we just open this part of the block during show times because we can't get grandma there? And then a lot of their patrons are old. And they go, you've made one of my major points. Basically, we've told people that have ambulatory challenges to stay home. We no longer, State Street is no longer part of your purview. And I go, you know, I got news for you. This is a growing population in terms of how we're aging out. And now you're telling them State Street is no longer yours to partake in. So here's what I'd like to see is a hybrid, whether you could have a trolley. A trolley really needs to have car traffic. Otherwise, it could be dangerous that the trolleys can go on there. So a the car that's not supposed to be there could be there. So maybe even one lane and with drop off zones or 15 minute zones or whatever. Define bike lanes uh, so that the bikes aren't all over the place. And, uh, you know, and maybe some retractable bollards. So you can say, you know, on the weekends, we're going to close these blocks down. And the weekend, weekdays, we're going to open them up. And when the fire guys come, they've got that remote button that drops the ballers so they can get their equipment in. I think there's a lot of ways to look at this. And I think that the uh, the process right now is looking at quite a few of those. I've tried to keep my distance a little bit because I've, I've got relatively strong opinions, but it's it's a community thing. So we'll see how that goes. I, I, this is when the ageism part comes in. I go... This is what we talked about in the 60s and 70s. Wow, so that was back then. I go, yeah, I know. Everybody's old now. But it's really true. It's it's what goes around comes around.
0: Absolutely. I, I understand that. And you mentioned that some businesses feel that there are accessibility needs that are not being met. You mentioned the Granada, but six businesses were denied an appeal and asked to remove their parklets. Can you speak to what happened in this meeting on May 24th?
1: Everybody has to be in ADA compliance. That's the law. That's the law. It's way above our pay grade. State and federal laws apply. And so you can't be out of compliance ever. What's hard for these parklets is they never went through a permitting process. They just said, everybody build parklets. And by the way, and after you're done, make them compliant. And sometimes that's really tricky. I'll give it to them. So we run all all these parklets. And every time staff would come back to us over the months and say, well, we've got, uh, you know, still got 22 out of compliance. And we were very we were firm with staff, said, you need to get these in compliance because we have a lot of folks in this town that have disabilities. And it's not fair to them that these other ones are in compliance. So we finally went through and we gave uh, in this last fall, they went out with these final notices and said, OK, here's notice one. Then a couple months later, notice two, three, finally four notices, and then a a vacate notice. And yeah, everybody had a different story and whatnot, but we needed to be consistent. And the really the thing is with ADA, it's not there's no like, well, we'll give you another few weeks. We can't do that. We're not supposed to do that. We could technically do it, but then we'd be in violation. So that's not we're not supposed to be in violation of like a federal statute. We're supposed to abide. So, uh, and everybody else did it and every other other business does it. So why would we let these, these six other cases go? And yeah, was it kind of picky in some things? Absolutely. But that we didn't make those rules up.
0: And I saw your comment, um, in the meeting that the law is the
1: law. The law is the law. And uh, now if it was a city code or whatever, yeah, we could maybe have that discussion. But frankly, there's a lot of people that get sued over ADA access and they're usually pretty successful when it comes to, to going to court. And that's not the real reason for doing it. The real reason is the law is there for a reason. As a matter of fact, our uh, you know our, our disability, uh, our access advisory committee is very strong on this. And uh, I get it. You can't have the ledges. You can't have certain tables. You have to do provisions. Yeah, it's, it's tough, but it is. Everybody else has to do it.
0: Thank you for that. And early in our conversation, we mentioned that these decisions or discussions are community-based, and there were nearly 400 emails from the public in favor of keeping the promenades. Would you say the city council listened to the community voices on this one? Do you think there was compromise? Did you meet in the middle? Or is there still community pushback?
1: Those 400 letters were solicited letters written with misleading information about how council was ready to to completely destroy the promenade and open the street back up to traffic. It was really unfortunate. I responded to every one of those, you know, cut and paste, obviously. And I got about 100 responses saying, thank you for the clarification. I didn't understand that. And I, you know, I understand who put those out. I understand why. But it was really one of those things I was disappointed more in my colleagues because I go, well, and I said this on the dais as well. I'll tell it to you now. I just said, if that's really how we're going to do decision making, why even have the meeting? Let's just go check our email and give the results, and there we go. Public input's really, really important. But if it's solicited public input like that, where information is given that's not true, or at least misleading, and then we make a decision based on that, I'm going, we'll, well, what are we doing up here? I mean, that's why I was so, I was very frustrated with that.
0: Would you say now there's more of a general understanding from the public on what the city council's doing?
1: I think people in general like the idea of a closed street, just the broad idea. But then when you mention, what about these parts of these businesses that haven't been opened, you know, on a closed street? Or um, do you ever want to see parades on the street? Oh, yeah, we want parades again. I go, well, you know, would you like to see a trolley? Well, yeah, I'd like to see a trolley. Or do you ever take Grandma down to the theater or to one of the restaurants? No, well, not anymore. I go, okay. So, I mean, I just need to know that because when you think about how wonderful it is to have this closed street, which box should be closed? How do we do that? And uh, so that's why polls are so, they're just not, I mean, governance has got to have some decision-making and logic. That's why you have elected representatives.
0: Right. And this one is definitely a a trickier subject to tackle. Absolutely. It's going to be
1: a long planning process. Like I think I might have told you before, I was part of Plan Santa Barbara uh, as a citizen before I was on council. And that took a decade to wrestle down. And this is not as big a deal. That wasn't as big a deal as this is.
0: Right, and to my understanding, there's a special advisory committee dealing with State Street, and one of the things that they're talking about right now is the 39% storefront vacancy rate on State Street. We were kind of mentioning this earlier in this conversation, but I wanted to speak about those plans, what's being delineated, and can you speak to any updates regarding the high vacancy rate?
1: Well, once again, I'm not even sure what the vacancy rate really is, because if you talk to Radius Real Estate, it's 14%. And they say 39%, which I think is a square footage thing, which has to do with the Paseo Nuevo. But potato, potato, whatever it is, there's more vacancies than there should be. Because right before COVID, as I mentioned before, how retail got a little soft, but just before that period, we had one of the lowest vacancy rates in the state. And we were selling properties at record per square foot prices. My point is, is that nothing is linear. There wasn't a point in time, oh my gosh, the whole world changed because of COVID. It was a big change, but not. it's a circular thing. So this is what's really important for people to understand. You know, before I was in business, well, right across the street, actually, before uh, we did the RDA, which tore out the ways that the street is, before we did Pasadena Wavel and all that. And remember what it was. It was kind of shotgun shacks on State Street, Ots Old Town Mall, the pavilion, I don't know what they called it, the Piccadilly Square. I mean, those places. So we made these changes, and it was wonderful for A while. And now people are going, oh, that was a big mistake. Well, it was 35 years ago. So where do we go now? Well, the important thing is people always kind of give me, talk to the hand. You're talking about the past. And I go, well, here's a couple of things. You've got your one historical design district, not the one in town, but the one of the most traditional ones in town, which is the El Pueblo Viejo, which is State Street. Everything you do there is usually a hard thing to do because of El Pueblo Viejo, You have just this historical perspective on the comings and goings of State Street, different populations, what's happened when retail boomed and retail got soft and all the decisions we made. So to completely discount the past is a real mistake because we have a great historical tradition here. And I think you have to not only respect it, but you better be wary of it in terms of your financial future and what's going on because when people come to Santa Barbara – and I knew this for all the years I was in business. I had mostly a local clientele, and they knew where all the works were. They go, oh, gosh, and this is about the homeless, this and blah. Visitors would come in, and I talked to them, too, and they go, I can't believe you get to live here. This is amazing. And I go, yeah, I think so, too. So there's both, but I think perspective is really important.
0: Right, and I appreciate that comment that you said in the beginning. Um, nothing is linear. I think that rings true. And before we wrap up this conversation, I wanted to ask about your overall feelings. What's your future vision for State Street? And what is the city council doing to gear up for
1: change? Okay, well, now, Uh, you know, the one my future desire is is vibrancy and vitality. Now, that's where all the opinions differ on how to get there. To me, uh, having gone through all the different recessions and whatnot when I was in my business, I know that when there was no traffic anywhere, things were bad, and things were slow. And then when it was a real pain in the butt to get around town, things were good. Everybody was busy. In the '90s, we built all these, started building all these parking structures. We were still going to be 1,200 spaces short for the projected growth when we built the Granada Garage. Okay, well, that didn't really come to fruition. So projections are what they are and whatnot. And now our parking lots are relatively... Un- I mean, they're they are not unused, but they're not as full right now because there's no retail activity on State Street or very little. Other places, however, are picking up. Coast Village Road is picking up. Upper Village is picking up. Goleta is picking up. They're basically eating our lunch. And I'm not saying cars are the magic button. So going back to my vision. My vision is... Lots of linear traffic on State Street, whether it's cars or not. At least trolley services, which I think is cars. I would like to see perhaps a one-way up from the beach traffic on State Street with the ability to pull over and drop off and do whatever, not necessarily park, but just to be able to drop people off or deliveries or pickups or whatever. I think that would help really bring State Street back. I also know that the people that bought the Hotel Santa Barbara and the people that are talking to us about the Paseo Nuevo... They're a little concerned about the status quo as well. You know, I think that as far as getting around Santa Barbara and circulation, yeah, we can live with things the way they are. But I'm not satisfied because things are not vibrant. And the downtown is really quiet. And retail's not gone forever. Retail, you know, if I had to ask you, what do you think the peak percentage of retail sales were during the peak of COVID? Take a guess what retail, what online sales were versus brick and mortar. Give it, give it a shot.
0: That's a percentage I have no idea about, but I do know brick and mortar took a hit took during a hit. COVID. But now that people are out and about again, it's, it's almost becoming a pastime
1: again. You should run for office. You're pretty good at dodging those questions. <laughs> no, it's, it was less than twenty percent, and I just assumed it was more just by what happens at my household. And I thought buying everything online and my wife's having an affair with the FedEx driver. I mean, this is there every day. But it was really, you know, it was less than, it was 14% was the peak across the country, probably a little bit more here. And uh, 6% of that total was Amazon. Those numbers were blew me away. They were so low. And our retail numbers are, are, excuse me, our sales tag numbers are real, still really strong. I mean, automobile sales and all that have a lot to do with that. But the point of the matter is this. It's not over. It might have changed. Retail might not be big, deep stores or tons of inventory anymore. But it's still, people still want to walk in. They want to talk to somebody. They want to touch the product. And, uh, you know, like I said, I don't know anything about retail, but I'm, this is what I'm getting from all the national retailers. So for some reason, they come talk to me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do for them. But so, yes, I've, I would like us to get full storefronts again, whatever way that takes. And I'm not talking about pop-ups or art installations. I'm talking about real live businesses with employees and products to sell and people walking up and down the street with shopping bags and enjoying life. And that's, that's you know, what configuration that takes remains to be seen.
0: Yep. And that's the vibrancy of State Street that.
1: Absolutely. And, and by the way, they, hopefully, I don't know how it's going to happen because it's expensive. If we can get more people to, be, to live downtown, if we can develop the kind of housing, it's the most expensive property on the South Coast, so I'm not really sure how that really works. But if we can encourage it whichever way we can or provide the incentives or whatever or not to, to do that, uh, that would be important too. If I was in my business, I would love to have 10,000 more people living downtown. It would have been wonderful. But that really sounds great on a planning document, but bringing that into reality is a whole different animal.
0: Absolutely. Well, lastly, before we wrap up the conversation, is there anything else you would like to add that you think I missed about the future of State Street?
1: And in, in, once again, I'm going to go back kind of the historical perspective. When you look at State Street, you look at the development of Santa Barbara, you look at the various traditions that we've had over the years, there's something that is temporary and experimental about what we're doing. And probably not experimental enough in my mind. I think we should have tried a bunch of different things. But it comes right down to it when you have to create an overall civic functionality, and that civic functionality isn't just for tourists. You got to reinvite the locals back downtown. And right now, I think the locals are, are saying they showing us the hand. They're not coming downtown. And uh, what is that going to take? It's just you know just bars and parklets on the street. Well, that's great if. You know, it's it's the weekend, and and you're you know from UCSB. But if if you're really taking the day-to-day thing, Tuesday afternoon, who's walking around down there? That's really important. It can't just be tourist season because it's a long time between November and May.
0: All right, Mayor Rouse, thank you so much for joining sure. me on the show today. It was a pleasure to hear your perspective on the future of State Street and everything that's going on in City Council. Well, thank you. Another thank you to Mayor Randy Rouse for speaking with me today on the Indie Pod. And up next, UCSB Arts and Lectures hosted Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, in a talk called Fighting Hate for Good. Greenblatt talked about anti-Semitic extremism and conspiracy theories, fighting that momentum and teaching anti-hate. The indie reporter, Chilo Espelius, sat down with Dan Mysel. Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Santa Barbara, Tri-Counties, to talk about the rise of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic incidents that are taking place in our community.
2: This past Monday, May 22nd, the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, spoke at UCSB's Arts and Lectures program about the rise of extremism, the role social media platforms play in this issue, and the Anti-Defamation League's efforts and mission to combat hate across our nation. I had the opportunity to interview Dan Mizell, who is the Regional Director of the ADL in Santa Barbara Tri-Counties. We touched on the recent acts of hate that have occurred in our community, the importance of education in our school systems, and his own personal mission to fight hate.
3: My name is Dan Meisel, uh, and I'm the regional director for ADL Santa Barbara Tri-Counties that serves Ventura, Santa Barbara, and San Luis Obispo counties.
2: Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the ADL, spoke at the University of California Santa Barbara as a part of the university's arts and lectures program this past Monday. He said that, quote, anti-Semitism was like a virus that has infected all corners of our nation, end quote. Can you talk about the rise of anti-Semitism in Santa Barbara County? Sure.
3: Well, our experiences in Santa Barbara County have paralleled kind of the national trend uh, and the trend in California with both rising numbers of anti-Semitic incidents. ADL's annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents nationally uh, had showed a annual low as recently as 2013, but we've seen dramatic increases in the last five years. So last year, for instance, we recorded, uh, I believe it was three thousand six hundred ninety-seven anti-Semitic incidents in the country, which was uh, a thirty-six percent increase over the year before, and three of the last five years have been the highest number on record since we started recording these incidents in uh, nineteen seventy-nine. In the tri-counties area, we did see a large leap uh, from fourteen incredible anti-Semitic incidents. To 24, uh, which is you know, a small number relative to the larger country, but also a 70% increase over one year. The larger concern is that these figures are also underrepresentative of what's occurring because uh, we, we strongly suspect there's underreporting to us of what people are experiencing. And I know that because we get calls quite often from schools that aren't filing incident reports, but express to us that they've seen a huge uptick in use of racial epithets and anti-Semitic epithets on campuses, particularly coming out of the pandemic. So we we see these trends of both kind of a normalization, I would say, of extremist language and hate language, um, but we're also seeing uh, proliferation of hate symbols in public property and, and other forms of more emboldened uh, action on anti-Semitic attitudes.
2: So you think that the rise in numbers is somewhat correlated to the pandemic and the lockdown?
3: Well, I think those are contributing factors, uh, the social isolation, but the larger contributing the mechanisms of social media platforms, uh, and where many people spend their time in pandemic-fueled isolation. Those, I think, were the largest uh, contributing factors to the rise in anti-Semitism.
2: How, as a community, can we become aware of anti-Semitic incidents and work together to diminish the spread of hate here in Santa Barbara.
3: So I appreciate you framing that generally coming coming from the second part of your statement is is that I think that, you know, addressing anti-Semitism involves addressing all forms of bigotry. So when we're responding to bias and bigotry generally, we are also responding to the conditions that give rise to anti-Semitism but the one element that i'll say about anti-semitism that differs from um, those other forms of bigotry is that anti-semitism tends to have a duality of being both identity bias uh, and all-powerfulness so there's this perception of jews both as inferior and all-powerful the first is identity bias the second is conspiracy theory and so what we've seen in the last few years is this rise in conspiratorial thinking that tends to happen When there is uh, growing distrust in public institutions, when there's growing political divisiveness, where you're seeing anti-Semitism, you are seeing some devolution of society and societal structures. So anti-Semitism isn't the only um, concerning bigotry that we're seeing on the rise, but it tends to rise at the forefront of of these other elements. It's not the most numerous either, um, but it certainly is an indication of problems in society.
2: Thank you for that in his talk jonathan greenblatt mentioned and you also just mentioned this the rise of extremism and the danger of extremist ideology my question is how does the anti-defamation league define extremism and can you talk about the specific incidents in santa barbara that have impacted the community
3: okay so there are yeah, several important questions in there you know how to define extremism you know i don't have the the adl definition at my fingertips but uh, extremism tends to be kind of a a a, a belief system based on falsity, um, and the extreme element of it is both kind of the the uh, extent or reliance on false falsity, and then the connection between false attitudes and and resulting action, resulting conduct. And so, a lot of our concern is that. Action and attitudes that we used to see in language that we used to see only on the fringe, the far extremes, on both the far left and the far right, we're seeing normalized uh, in various contexts. So we're seeing the language and some of the conduct being perpetuated by people that we wouldn't have historically associated as just extreme left or extreme right. So, you know, our concern is with the normalization of those patterns of thought and activity. So the first step in responding uh, effectively to anti-Semitism is uh, for our community to have a better understanding of what Judaism is. There was a misperception that Judaism is just a religion, and therefore criticism that isn't addressed to religious practice cannot therefore be anti-Semitic. But Judaism is more than just religious practice. It's an ethnicity, a culture, a shared um, cultural heritage, a connection to land. Uh, At times it's been a nation. Uh, It has been uh, since the establishment of Israel, although Israel is not Judaism. Those are not equivalents. Judaism just plays a large part in Israel's existence and right to exist as a a state with Jewish self-determination. But understanding Judaism helps people acknowledge, identify when anti-Semitism occurs, because most of anti-Semitism doesn't address itself to Jewish religious practice to other elements of Jewish historical experience and falsities and stereotypes associated with it. So understanding more about Judaism and the Jewish experience over over time and how anti-Semitism has manifested is really important uh, for people to be able to understand when their own behavior crosses that line. You had a question about how we've seen it manifest in the Santa Barbara or or the Tri-Counties area. Uh, we've seen anti-Semitism manifest in the Tri-Counties area in a multitude of ways, as we see it occur around the country. And part of that is because anti-Semitism can appear from anywhere on the political spectrum. So when I talk about anti-Semitism being a conspiracy theory, this sense that Jews are all powerful and have some agenda to dominate the world. So when we talk about the uh, conspiracy theory element of Judaism, one of the consequences of conspiracy thinking is that it's connected to this very strong liberation narrative. To be to to address a conspiracy theory, to address conspiracy, the narrative is that we're freeing ourselves from control in some way. So how have we seen it manifest in the Santa Barbara tri-counties? Well, on the right, we've seen it manifest itself in terms of virulently anti-Semitic uh, literature that has been distributed in, in neighborhoods in Ventura County and Santa Barbara County. Uh, multiple times. It's a a few number of people doing the distributions, but the distributions themselves are very alarming and designed to drive traffic uh, to the distributor's website so they can earn money. So they're monetizing their hate. We've also seen kind of a a proliferation of hate symbols in public spaces. So swastikas on park bench, on park benches, uh, uh, spray painted on cars, on uh, walls of public places. Uh, we've also seen anti-Semitism enter dialogue uh, just between students, uh, where there can be, you know, when when one student learns that another is Jewish, there could be some statement in praise of Hitler or Nazism.
2: When you mention students, are you thinking elementary, middle school, high school, college?
3: Most of the time, we see it; it's it's junior high or above. That there's, you know, that when the language of the Holocaust is introduced into the curriculum Uh, students understand kind of how provocative it can be and so we see them using it uh, in various contexts both to be provocative or maybe they've heard it at home and they haven't been checked in using that behavior before Um, students you know in junior high and high school also start spending a lot more time in online gaming and on social media platforms where we've seen a huge spread of anti-semitic language and bigotry in general uh, Facebook's own internal report showed that 64% of the membership of extremist groups occurred in response to an invitation from Facebook to join group. Students are spending more time you know, in those age groups, in online spaces. They're probably encountering bigotry far more than they ever have before.
2: Um, thank you so much for expanding on that. And also mentioning the importance of education on Judaism as, a, as not just a religion, but as a culture and an ethnicity. So also during Jonathan Greenblatt's presentation, I learned that the Anti-Defamation League believes that hate lives in the hearts and minds of people. I and mean, I thought that was a really interesting comment. Can you expand a little bit on this concept? Why is it important to teach anti-hate to our younger generations? And this kind of relates to what we were talking about earlier.
3: Sure. So we are not born as haters. You know, we maybe we're born with an affinity to uh, people or things that are close to us or look like us. But hateful attitudes are something we learn from those around us or the environment around us, things we encounter. So uh, it's important that early ages we start to help uh, kids identify when their behavior is impacting others in negative ways. And that can be, you know, larger statements that they, they don't understand, or it can be microaggressions that they don't understand how how these uh, how conduct is received by somebody with a very different perspective. So. You know, opening doors to um, our kids at a younger age as to how different experiences and perspectives result in, you know, different, uh, different lenses, different senses of identity is important when we have moments of somebody in behaving in a, in a negative way that impacts others that we not treat it as a punishment moment, that we treat it as, you know, as Jonathan Greenblatt says, as, as not cancel culture, but counsel culture. We look for those moments, those educational moments to teach about the impact of comments that can be negative to other people that can have a negative impact.
2: Thank you. Okay, this is a, a more of a personal question. What motivates you to do the work that you do with the Anti-Defamation League in Santa Barbara County?
3: Thank you for that question. I became very interested in in the the agreements that we've made as a society that protect minorities, um, probably growing up as a child as the only Jewish student in most of my school classes and being asked annually to represent the Jewish perspective around holiday time. But it, it really solidified for me when I was at college and started delving into constitutional law and getting a sense of Kind of how important this social compact is that is our constitution and the promises in there that we've yet to fully realize to protect our fully protect our minor, minority and marginalized populations. And I think I gained an appreciation not only of uh, how identity can be at risk, can put somebody at risk. I ended up being very involved as a volunteer in ADL because I liked the, the mission statement from the beginning was to stop the defamation of Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment for all. And I liked the way the ADL really adopted a a nuanced approach to those issues of balancing public interests and private interests and protecting uh, minority and marginalized populations. So after a decade of of volunteering and being a supporter, when the opportunity arose to step into a staff role, I felt that uh, it was one of the most important things I could be doing with my time. Uh, And that's how it's felt.
2: Thank you for the transparency. Is there anything else you would like to add or say before we close our segment?
3: People often ask me, what's the right response to a bigotry incident, an incident of, of, of hate or bias? And my answer is that you need a combination of communal condemnation and meaningful engagement. So the communal condemnation is important because you're expressing to society that you value the targeted community. It's also important because you are checking this behavior. You're reinforcing what society's positive values are. The meaningful engagement differs depending on the situation, but this is where you're making an effort to change hearts and minds. And that can happen in an individual conversation. It can happen merely because somebody stands up and calls bigotry out when they see it, or it can take the form of more in-depth educational programming. But that's the mindset that we need. We, you know, if we remain silent, if we don't stand up and respond to bigotry or bias, then we're enabling it. So as, as we all experience this in our midst, and it can happen online, it can happen at the supermarket, you know, so long as you feel safe, because our safety is, is paramount, if you feel safe to speak up, uh, if you can find avenues to express both the condemnation and the desire to meaningfully engage without condemning somebody, think council culture rather than cancel culture, that to me is the best way for us to be addressing these problems as a community.
2: I just wanted to say that I learned so much by attending Jonathan Greenblatt's conversation at UCSB and also so much from interviewing you. I feel much more educated on a lot of things, and I feel like my perspective has changed as well.
3: I'm very thankful to Arts and Lectures for really seeking uh, and convening that that session, you know, for our community to be able to hear from the voice of our organization. It's clearly a powerful message.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and,
3: and one that I hope, you know, people keep thinking and talking about for a good while.
2: You're listening to The Indie. I'm Chilo Espelius.
0: Thank you again, Dan, myself, for coming on the show today and speaking about the rise of anti-Semitism, not only at home, but beyond. That's all for this week. And thank you so much for tuning in to The Indie. To stay up to date with the team, be sure to follow us at The Indie Pod on Instagram. From the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent, I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg.
1: And
3: as always, we'll see you next
0: week.